Welcome along to the Prompt Academy podcast. I'm your host, Emma Knight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. And today on the show, we're talking about, all the Reserve Bank's financial stability report. Because every six months, the Reserve Bank does release a, a report on how the financial system is going. Now, this gives us some really good clues about what's going on, what moves the Reserve Bank might make, and how stable the housing market is. So stick with us because we've got some clips for you from the press conference and it actually gives us a couple of clues about where the Reserve Bank's head is at, what might happen to lending overall. Now, there were three main themes that came out of that press conference and from the report, which is probably 50-odd pages long. Andrew, what was theme number one we were picking up from that? Well, the first theme is that overall, the financial sector's quite strong. So that's that's you know that's some positive news and maybe not what we kind of led to believe in the media at the moment. So overall, LVR on properties is very very low, which again, you know, we read all this stuff about high LVR loans and actually Ed and I were just talking about Kiwi Bank pulling all their high LVR approvals that are all conditional. They just whipped them away as of the date of this recording. And so across the country or across all housing at the moment, LVR is actually only 20%. And a big part of this is because there's been a major jump in values over the last wee while, and obviously people's mortgages have stayed the same or gone down a little bit. And that's fallen from 30% back in 2008, just after the GFC. So we're way under that. We're 50% below that, which is awesome. Overall, households are better off. And, you know, again, Despite all the doom and gloom merchants, the mortgage deferral scheme is basically over. At its peak of this, the program, this accounted for about 8% of all mortgage lending, whereas now it's only about 0.5% of 1% of all mortgage lending on that hardship program. So again, we're pretty much all but dealt with all of that. And employment under 4%. And one of the other big things that obviously they look at is the level of interest-only mortgages. And again, we hear a lot about that. We hear about, you know, challenges potentially for people getting renewals. But the amount of interest-only lending today is lower than it was at the start of the pandemic. And remember, people would have applied to go interest-only because maybe change in employment status or change in their business during the pandemic. So, you know, we're at a better position than before COVID was even a thing. Back when it was a storm in a teacup. Now, the interesting thing as well, Andrew, is that households have never been in a better financial position in order to be able to support a robust and ongoing property market because the amount of debt we've got is lower than it's been previously. We've got very high employment. And as we just said, there's fewer people on those mortgage deferral schemes. I remember when we were talking about that, there were going to be a whole heap of mortgagee sales. Well, they never actually eventuated. Yeah. One interesting stat out of that financial stability report as well is even if there was a 30% decrease in house prices, 3-0, only 10% of households would actually be in negative equity. So we could have almost a third of the value of the housing market shaved off and the bulk of us, 90% of us, wouldn't actually be affected overall, which is actually kind of astonishing when you think about it, especially because we hear a lot about people leveraging up in order to be able to purchase property. And obviously that does happen. 100% happens, especially our first home buyers. But at an aggregate view, financial system is really robust, really healthy, which means that if we do go through some sort of recession or an economic downturn in the near future, 
hey, households are pretty okay overall. Now, theme number two, though, is not everyone is all gravy. And what I mean by this is, you know what? There's actually a tension between what the Reserve Bank sees as the financial stability risk or the greatest risk to the financial system right now and what the government wants to happen. And what I mean by that is, while in aggregate households might be all good, you know, people who own properties, people who live in houses together might be pretty good with the factors we just talked about. If you are a first home buyer, you're having to leverage up quite high in order to be able to do it. So first home ownership actually has just hit a record high as a percentage of the market. In fact, 26.4% of all purchases recently were first home buyers, according to CoreLogic data. A record high, never been so many first home buyers active in the market. But this group is clearly obviously the most vulnerable to a house price decline. So if we look, for instance, at the percentage of first home buyers who have a debt to income ratio above six and an LVR above 70, there are a total of 22.6% of first home buyers are in that position. Now, if we look at, say, investors in that same position, DTI, debt to income ratio of six or above and LVR above 70, so that could be somebody who's you know, purchasing a lot of new builds, for instance, 6.5% of investors are in that position. So what's the takeout from that? Well, as a proportion, there are three times many more first-home buyers undertaking risky lending compared to investors. And in fact, there's probably about twice as many other owner-occupiers, so people who already owned homes, who are taking on that risky lending compared to the proportion of investors. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, if we're talking about bringing in debt-to-income ratios, if we're talking about bringing in debt servicing restrictions from the Reserve Bank, then it's clearly going to hit those first home buyers and your owner-occupiers first because those are the ones who are taking on that lending above a debt-to-income ratio of 6 and at a higher LVR level. They're the ones who are taking on what the Reserve Bank themselves call risky lending. So if they bring it in, it actually wouldn't impact property investors as much as it would the first home buyers. But remember, when the finance minister first said, yes, you can bring in a debt to income ratio, he said, but we need to minimise the impact on first home buyers. So when I look at these stats, it does put some question marks over the efficacy or the effectiveness of, say, bringing in a debt to income ratio and perhaps let's say the Reserve Bank exempted first-home buyers, well, it probably wouldn't have that much of an impact on the market because it's the first-home buyers who are really at that high DTI level based on the data the Reserve Bank is sharing from this. So there's that real tension between what the Reserve Bank sees as the financial risk, which is that risky lending out to first-home buyers, and then what the government wants, which is even more first-home buyers in the market. And in fact, actually, let's roll that first clip of Adrian Orr. Again, I'll emphasise this is around the individuals, the household balance sheet. The financial system as a whole is resilient. So again, they're repeating what we've talked about. Hey, look, financial system as a whole, really strong, really strong. But the individual, old first-home buyer with a whole heap of debt, they're the one who are least resilient at the moment, would be most impacted by a house price shock. And walk us through how that impacts theme number three, Andrew. Well, I guess this puts a bit of a doubt on whether or not a full-scale debt-to-income ratio is actually going to be introduced because, as you'll remember, the Reserve Bank starts consulting on this at the end of the month and it's fair to ask, 
well, if the financial system's so resilient at the moment, do we need any further restrictions? Because remember, these things take quite a while to actually implement, whereas something like a minimum test interest rate, a rate floor, that's much more easily introduced. And I think we've got another couple of clips here. Question of debt servicing restrictions, well, that will be obviously consulted on and have to have a cost-benefit analysis of how much we need those. It will depend upon the risks at the time, whether risks are mounting or whether we've managed to maintain and banks have been prudent enough to keep lending at a, at a prudent level. If risks are low, as, as sort of you're implying, then they may not be needed. If they're rising, then they would be. And that was Deputy Governor Jeff Baskant, who is actually moving away from the Reserve Bank, sadly, speaking about, and that was a question, I think, from Bernard Hickey, a financial journalist, asking, you know, well, why do we need a debt-to-income ratio then if the financial system is so resilient? And the answer being, well, as long as banks aren't doing a whole heap of risky lending, then perhaps we don't need that. And I guess that's probably why we are seeing organisations like BNZ bringing in a debt-to-income ratio themselves, and also places like... Kiwi Bank, as you'd said earlier, clamping down on high LVR loans so that if they are seen as prudent lenders, then perhaps we don't need as much regulation. It was also asked, actually, Andrew, about whether the Reserve Bank had already made up their mind about debt-to-income ratios. And here's what the Reserve Bank Governor, Adrian Orr, had to say. The simple answer to that is we're consulting, and if you're consulting properly, you consult with an open mind. And so, yeah, in that instance, Adrian Orr is saying they haven't made some decisions on this. Overall, the financial system's looking really, really resilient. There are a couple of areas with first home buyers and some investors, some owner occupiers, taking on what they see as risky lending. So LVR above 70% and at the same time, a DTI above 6 If the banks can clamp down on that, perhaps we won't need some of those DTIs. And do you know what this actually spoke to me about, Andrew? And this is going to come into the episode we're going to do tomorrow where we talk about the sustainability of house prices. It really comes to talking about the lock-in effect. And what I mean by that, and I've talked about this a little bit on the show, is that as the Reserve Bank clamps down on the ability for investors to lend, as that happens and as the Reserve Bank tries to make households more resilient to any bad effects or negative effects in the economy, the ability for there to be a massive drop in house prices decreases. And what I mean by that is as house prices increase, those effectively get locked in because households are so resilient to an economic shock because we already have very high employment. We've been stress tested at such high test rates that we could see interest rates increase by 3% and households would still be able to absorb that because that's what they've been tested on. So there are a limited range of factors that would at a whole cause the housing market to crash. So as we see increases in house prices, there is a limit to how quickly they can fall down. And we're going to see that actually in tomorrow's episode where we're going to talk about the sustainability of house prices. But this lock-in effect, I think, is so fascinating because inadvertently, while trying to contain the housing market, they also lock in the current prices that are already there. I also find it quite interesting that sometimes the threat or the expectation of something changes has the same effect as if the change is implemented. So, you know, thinking back to, you know, conversations around capital gains tax years ago and introduction of new measures for property investors, all of a sudden investors get worried about the uncertainty and that has the control that the Reserve Bank wants to actually have and so they don't actually need to introduce it in the end. 
Fantastic. Let's wrap it up there. But please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, if you want to learn more about Property with Andrew and I, check out our YouTube channel because every single Wednesday we release a brand new video, teach you something new about property investment here in New Zealand. If you want to subscribe to that, head over to YouTube. Just do a little Google search. Opus Partners YouTube, it'll come up. Or I'll link that into the show notes. So tap or swipe over the cover art. There'll be a wee link in there. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time. Bye.